Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. I'm Pat Mitchell. Most of my life, I was uh, an executive or CEO or president, a reporter, a journalist, a writer. In this newly rewired life, I think I would describe myself as a connector, a convener, a curator, and a lifelong advocate for women and girls. I never had a woman boss or leader. Now I see that as an opportunity to encourage women to come together and work together. If we came together collectively in our communities or wherever and worked toward common cause, there's just no question we could create enormous change. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal, helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger. Pat Mitchell is an Emmy Award-winning television executive, chair of the Sundance Institute, co-chair of the Women's Media Center, and gala co-chair of the Women's Media Awards. She talks about her decades-long career as a media mogul and how she's used her platform to help advance other women's voices. Pat, when you were a young girl, your grandmother would tell you that falling on your face is at least a forward movement. What did she mean? My grandmother, who had Native American roots and who had a saying for absolutely everything that ever happened to you, um, used to say to me all that all the time because I fell constantly. I, I've, I think balance has always been a challenge for me, and I was always running. So she would find me on my face from running and falling. And I think she wanted to make me feel better about it. So she'd always say, well, at least it's a forward movement. So as I went through my life and hit the hurdles that we all do and had those times where I really felt like I had fallen on my face, maybe not physically, but emotionally or psychologically or in terms of a career I want, you know, all the things that happen that you're not expecting. And out of every one of those times where I would have described it as a fall or a failure or um, not moving forward, out of every one of them, I did actually move forward. So it became something that I would say to myself in those really dark, deep times of questioning whether I was going the right direction, whether I'd taken the right position. I would think, well, falling forward can be a forward movement. And it always was and is. When you were growing up in the South in the 50s, what expectations did you have of yourself? I had big expectations. I didn't want to live in that small town or the farm on which I spent my early years. I knew that I didn't want to be a teacher or a secretary or a nurse, and those were the three options I was given. So I always expected more of myself than anyone else around me until I met my first mentor. The expectations from everyone else were that I would get married, have children, live next door to my mother, uh, and maybe be a secretary or a nurse or a teacher. But my eighth grade English teacher um, saw my potential. She helped me dream big, as I was already doing, but she showed me a pathway to achieving those dreams. And with her help, I got a scholarship and became the first person in my family to go to college and, in fact, made it possible for me to go way beyond everybody else's expectations, but exactly what my expectations were for myself. 
you started off your career in teaching, and your students were detained by the police during a civil rights march. What did you learn from that experience? <laughs> you really have done your research, I have to say, Veronica. Um, well, it was during the civil rights marches and the uh, integration of the University of Georgia, where I went to school, to graduate school, and then I was on the faculty at the university. And I had been very active in the civil rights movement for many years, and I couldn't help but occasionally mention it to my my students, what I was doing on the weekends, which was generally marching somewhere. And so I invited them to come if they wanted, and we were arrested because it was there was a um, petition against our march that day. They, of course, didn't throw me in the cell because I was a faculty member, and they did put my students in a big holding cell. And I was um, worried about the reaction from parents and the rest of the faculty from my having led them into this perilous situation. Um, and it, just as we, I was leaving um, to go see what I could negotiate in terms of their release, a red pickup truck wheels into the parking lot, and I guy gets out in his overalls and he comes marching toward me and I think okay this is it he's going to hit me and he says are you the English teacher that took my my uh, son on this march and I said yes sir he goes well I just want to shake your hand he never cared about anything <laughs> so that was a good lesson to me in two things. First of all, sometimes you really do have to just be dangerous and break the law uh, if it's about a good cause, and it certainly was a good cause in this case. And secondly, um, you know, I have always felt that my advocacy was something I wanted to share with my students, my friends, my colleagues. And while they may not always agree with my tactics or even my the outcomes I'm going for, um, that that experience taught me why not give people the opportunity to stand up and care. You got divorced in your 20s and came to New York as a single mom. How did you get the courage to do that? Mm. You know, I'm really not sure where that courage came from. It's something that we can look back on something and say, wow, how did I get through that? But at the time, you just do. Um, getting a divorce in the 60s in the South and with a child was absolutely unheard of. And I was pretty much ostracized by everyone, including my own family, who said, you can't do that. My mother said, how are you going to support yourself? And I had to say to her mother, I already support myself and my husband, who's still in school. Um, but it was it was difficult. I did make a decision to leave the South because I felt I needed a new beginning, a truly new beginning. Um, I fortunately pursued an opportunity. It, it led me to Virginia and then eventually to New York. That was scary, coming here with a, a young son and a a job, but not a great job. I was actually making less money than I had been making teaching. And then six months later, I was unemployed because the magazine, Look Magazine, went out of business. So those were the scariest times that I can remember, actually, even thinking about them now, being unemployed, having a son to support, no funds, no money, and no prospects for a job. And in those kinds of times, you just get up every day and 
um, and go look for another opportunity and find ways to support yourself in the meantime. You said your definition of success then was putting food on the table for your young son. What financial advice do you have for women who are going through a financially difficult time? I did what a lot of young mothers and, in fact, a lot of people of all ages do. I I did have to put food on the table and pay for the rent. So I worked as a waitress at night with my master's degree and almost Ph.D., and I went on interviews all day long and pursued every opportunity. Um, And I didn't even think about saving or investing. I mean, none of that was possible for me then. It was just survival day to day. Then when I got my first television job and moved to Boston, and I actually was making more money than I could ever have imagined that I would make in my whole entire life. And that's when I should have sought out a financial advisor, and I didn't. And I deeply regret that. My lawyer at the time, the guy who negotiated my contract, so he knew how much money I was making. And by today's standards, it wasn't a lot. But by those standards and my standards, it was a lot. And he would say things to me like, I don't think you should buy a house or invest in stock or anything because, after all, you're in television, and television is so fleeting. I mean, you could be fired tomorrow. This could all go away. So he didn't encourage me to build security, financial security. In fact, if anything, he made me much less secure. And by the way, so did the people we worked for. I mean, in those days, you know, every station had one woman. There was one place for... and. There was a whole level of insecurity about our uh, whether we'd keep the jobs or, or the next job would work out. But looking back on it, with a different kind of advice and counsel, I could have begun then to prepare for the times ahead because I would hit a couple of more times of unemployment, this time more by choice because I just chose to leave the network and, and start my own company. But there would have been so many times when I had the funds and had the means to invest. I didn't buy my first house until I was 52 years old. That's outrageous. I mean, because think of the how much better it would have been for me if I had done that instead of throwing away all that money for renting. I didn't buy my first stock until I was 54. So this is one of the things I'm, I'm most passionate about sharing from my life's experiences is this is not acceptable. And gratefully today, there's a whole lot of opportunity and access to better financial management, better financial information. And and we need to seek it out and we need to follow the advice. This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years. A lot has changed, but one thing that remains constant, including the different types of durable income in portfolios, can help investors meet their goals. With expertise across income and alternatives, Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principal is possible. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. 
When you started on TV, you were one of a handful of women on air, and you said women were encouraged to compete with each other. Do you think that's changed? I think it's changed somewhat because the numbers have changed. Now it's not just a matter of uh, what they used to say to us was protect your turf, your place. There's only one, so you better protect it. That clearly led to a lot of competition among us. And, and part of growing up female, I think even today, however, still has a bit of that compete and compare cultural context in which we are as young girls uh, taught to, to look at each other as competition. But as the numbers got better professionally, it became more of an alliance and a collaborative effort to improve things overall for women. When I talk to young women today about the workplace, about women, um, because now so many of them actually work for women, which is wonderful, not enough, because there aren't enough women bosses and leaders. But but I never had a woman boss or leader in my early days. Now I see that as an opportunity to encourage women to come together and work together. I actually think it's our biggest single lever for change. If we came together collectively in our communities or wherever and worked toward common cause, there's just no question we could create enormous change. And I do see some of it because the numbers are better, because you uh, – I think Marlo Thomas had this great line. What, what was it? One is a pest, two is an alliance, and three no, – no, one is a pest, two is a coalition, and three is a movement. So I think in most companies now we, we have movement uh, if the women come together. So many women in the TV and entertainment industry have spoken about being sexually harassed. Was that your experience? I think it's fair to say, and it's been my judgment based on the women that I know and talk to, and that's a large global community of women, that sexual harassment and sexual assault is true with almost every woman I know. I mean, one out of three women on the planet are sexually assaulted. So that's already over a billion women. So, yes, um, it happened to me. It happened to everyone that I know that I worked with at that time who have now come forward. None of us came forward then. And I think looking back, we have to accept that we didn't see a pathway to doing that. We wouldn't have been believed. We would probably have lost our jobs. In my case, I couldn't afford that. In most cases, they couldn't. And and it was a sort of secret silence uh, that um, everyone regrets, I'm sure. At various points, at, even before Me Too, people did start to come forward and talk about that as a reality for so many uh, working women and non-working women. Now, uh, because of Me Too, there's such a much bigger opportunity that women can break the silence, be believed, and have impact, although, you know, clearly recent events can lead us to worry about the, the level of, of belief. And I worry about survivors during this time, um, the, the encouragement to come forward and 
and speak the truth is so important. And um, and yet all a lot of what's gone on has given concern, too, for the survivors who, who see what happens sometimes. But the good news is we've also seen what happens when the silence leads to perpetrators being revealed. What do you say to women who can't afford to come forward? They feel like they can't afford it. Well, that was our case. Um, I, I really think had any of us come forward in those early days when we were breaking, uh, pushing against every challenge anyway, we had to prove we could do the jobs men did. We had to prove that the audience would like women on television. We had to prove we could cover political conventions and wars. And I mean, everything was about proving ourselves. So I think also be- getting believed uh, for the uh, a sexual harassment or assault story was probably just one more barrier uh, we didn't take on. But today, there there are ways to come forward, and, and we really must. We have to end this, uh, this possibility even for any woman anywhere. You eventually moved into a management role in TV. What's your advice for women moving into a leadership position? Finding our voice as a leader is probably the most important thing for us. And we come into it with a lot of uh, stereotypes and negative associations having to do with power, a word that women have a really hard time with by and large. And why not? Every possible association with power is usually a negative one. Uh, But I believe um, something that I heard very early on in my career from a fabulous New York congresswoman named Bella Abzug, who said, In the 21st century, women will change the nature of power rather than power changing the nature of women. So I believe that about women as leaders, that if we come into leadership positions, as more and more are, and we define our power and our sphere of influence and the way in which we lead others in a different way, then we'll really start to make the changes that are needed. How did you learn how to embrace your own power? Through a long uh, pathway of making mistakes and learning from them. Um, the first time I had a, a president and CEO title, I worried uh, because I'd been the first so many times, and here I was the first again. And um, I worried that everything I did and said would be judged through that lens. Oh, is this the way a woman makes decisions? Oh, is this the way a woman runs a staff meeting? And true enough, uh, many times that was exactly what happened. Oh, this is the – oh, look, she's hired seven women out of nine. Hmm. I was even accused of running an affirmative action program for women by uh, one of my board members. But in fact – I also saw the big opportunity, and this is the advice I give. It's an opportunity to change the whole concept of power. And I began to feel that within myself, that if I wanted to, I wanted to bring all of my life, not just part of it, all of my experiences, not just some of them, to my leadership position. So my mothering my grandmothering now, um, my, my role as, as a wife, uh, as a community leader, as an activist, as an advocate. I mean, everything that I had done was a part of the way that I would lead others instead of, like, making all these 
oh, no, if I do that, that seems a little bit too feminine or too womanly or will that be misjudged or mischaracterized? It's um, it, it, For me, it was finding what that meant to me to have power, what that meant to me to have leadership, and to realize that if I didn't embrace it and use it, and for me, using it meant using it to further empower other women, then that would then why be a leader? You know that that was a loss. So I really uh, encourage women now. It's a very big part of my mission, as it were, to encourage all of us to accept that we have it. We have power within. It may be a small sphere, or it may be our school, our community, our workplace, whatever. But we have it with each other and standing alone and standing together. We have more. You say everybody needs a rabbi. What do you mean by that? Well, I got mine um, on a very dismal, rainy night in New York City when I had lost my purse and everything else and was sure that I was going to have to go back home to the South and give up my dream of living in New York and working here. And um, a rabbi actually found my purse and returned it. And he said to me that night, you know, everybody in their life needs a rabbi at some point, and tonight you got yours. And when he said that to me, I, I was, of course, overjoyed with the, the return and the fact that I did have hope again. And he said, now you have to be somebody else's rabbi. So for me, the rabbi became mentor. And it may be in the form of a boss, a teacher, a colleague, a friend on the block, another mother. Um, but but I do feel that responsibility, and I take it very seriously, that I may just be the rabbi somebody needs at some uh, difficult and challenging time in their lives. You're board chair of the Sundance Institute. How can female filmmakers get more funding? Well, getting funding for independent films, which is what Sundance um, Sundance supports independent artists, actually, and storytellers, playwrights, filmmakers. And we have increased the number of women who are in the Sundance Institute programs, our lab programs. We get um, many, many more applications, or we used to, from male storytellers than women, but that's now reversed. Interestingly enough, we have more. So, uh, And the good news is that most of our labs are uh, gender balanced. In fact, in many cases, there are more women uh, than men and, and diversity from all other ways, too. So I find that world has opened up in a new way where it has not opened up significantly enough is just what you reference on the finance side. There are more women telling great stories, important stories, more women getting um, their projects moved forward. But when it comes to getting the films made, the, the budgets they need to put their plays on Broadway or their films on the screen, they have a harder time. And it's interesting. It even happens after a woman's had a huge hit, after a big box office hit, a director, woman director, will have three times more t- trouble raising money for her next film than a man director, male director does. That makes no sense. So I think between Me Too, Me Too, Time's Up, really looking deeply at the representation. And that's what the Women's Media Center has done. 
They we we started in two thousand five talking about the misrepresentation and the underrepresentation of women across all forms of media, and now we can look and see where progress has definitely been made. There are more women produced films, more women films that are in the top one hundred grossing films, and through our training programs at Sundance and at the Women's Media Center. We put a lot more women's voices and women's stories uh, into all forms of media. And that's the point, because if media is our most important vehicle and platform for shaping opinions, our, our ideas about ourselves, about other places and cultures, it's the place where we pass on our stories and share our stories. So it was absolutely essential that the media landscape start to look a lot more like the world that the media was serving. And it's beginning to because of the efforts of the Women's Media Center. I really believe the, the, um, our progress there has been very strong. And the reports we put out have shown some progress, but a lot more progress needs to be made. What type of investor are you? Uh, cautious. But then I'm 75 years old, so you know it's only right I would be cautious, right? I, I've got to think about uh, you know pretty secure investments. But I have taken some risk recently that I recommend. I've invested in a all women's fund that is only investing in women-led entrepreneurial initiatives, and that's the most fun I've had as an investor. Uh, the helm is is this new fund that I'm. I'm a part of. So that if I'd started out a lot earlier, though, I'd probably not only have a little more money, but I would have had a lot more fun. At last count, I saw that you won 35 Emmys. Is that right? Uh, programs that I, documentaries and specials that I was executive producer of, our producer, in which I played a role, yes. And I have to thank Ted Turner for that. He created uh, an wonderful production entity within Turner Broadcasting and he gave us a budget to do things right and to do important to tell important stories and those important stories got recognized that's always a good feeling how come you still work then <laughs> I still work because I didn't invest well in those early days no that's not the right answer I still work because I love it I hope I never stop working. Being completely and fully engaged in life and my nonprofit humanitarian work is is tremendously important. The only thing I change by not working full time is that I just put all my time back in my control. But I'm still using my time to be as productive and as engaged as I have ever been. In fact, I think maybe even more so. And that's that. That's what makes. That's what gives me purpose in my life is following my passions and um, doing some good along the way. Time now for your secrets. I'm Pat Mitchell, and my money secret is that I give a lot of money away. This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com. 
or on Twitter, use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.